Good morning, and I greet you too in Jesus' name. Certainly enjoyed the Sunday school hour songs. Appreciated that last song we sang as well. Very, uh, very fitting. Welcome to visitors too. We're glad you're here. Come back again when you can. We uh, enjoy visitors, and we hope that your experience with us can be good, and you can worship the Lord with us here this morning. I asked Darla a few uh, few weeks ago if um, when the appropriate time would be to uh, have a Christmas message. Should it be six days before Christmas or one day after Christmas? Her thought was it should be six days before Christmas, so uh, that's, that's where we're going to go this morning. Um, we're going to have a I guess a a Christmas message this morning. And I don't know what your favorite part of Christmas is. Uh, There's a a lot of things that are traditionally kind of, um, you know, it kind of happens around Christmas. We we have our our cookies and and family reunions and we go caroling and and, um, we get Christmas cards and pictures and and, uh, we have gift exchanges and uh, programs and suppers and these things are, you know, this all happens around Christmas, doesn't it? And uh, the minister is expected to at least preach one message on Christmas. And uh, so these are, these are things we do. And, you know, we as, um, we as God's people, we participate in, in this. Uh, you know, our culture, I, I don't know, I, I didn't look at this at all, but I don't know how if I lived in, say, um, um, I don't know. Pick a country. If I lived in, say, um, uh, Moldova this morning, would I celebrate Christmas in a different way? Would the culture dictate to me that I do something different than I do in North America? I'm not sure of that. I would, I would imagine maybe there's a little bit of differences from one culture to the next, and we're we're a bit influenced by that. And um, you know, there's there's some Christians that that would maintain that, you know, because Christmas, after all, obviously, I think it's, we all know that Christ wasn't born on December 25th. That's some, I didn't even look into it. I think I knew at one point how that all came to be, that we have December 25th as, as Christmas Day, and I think there may even be some some pagan implications to that and, and things even, or at least questionable. But anyway, that's that's the way it is. We're, we're, we're here this week, and, and we have... We as, as God's people don't make a big issue out of when exactly Christ was born, but we do celebrate at this time of the year, much like our culture around us. But, you know, there's some Christians say, well, you know, maybe we should just eschew it all together. And we had some neighbors at home that that was the way they celebrated Christmas. They just went to the barn and milked cows and came in and, I don't know, washed clothes that day. They just did, did what they did any other day. They just totally ignored it because they felt it was a, a pagan thing. And I don't necessarily that's their prerogative. That's what they did. And then, you know, we could go off the deep end on the other side and we could uh, just go all in and we could completely become um, totally commercialized in our in our holiday celebrations and spend thousands of dollars and and, uh, you know, uh, practice some gluttony and glitz and glamour. And we could do that, too. And uh but you know, we, we, we try to pick a happy medium. I think that's what we try to do. We try to do things that would, uh, that would encourage the, we, we call it the true meaning of Christmas. This isn't a term that's unfamiliar to us, you know. Let's, let's remember the true meaning. And, and I'd say that's good. I'm glad that we are concerned that we, 
we keep the true meaning of Christmas. Well, what is the true meaning of Christmas? Well, it's, it's Jesus Christ, isn't it? And if we have too much of these other distractions, it can, uh, it can take away from the true meaning of Christmas. So I don't know. I don't know what you're expecting this morning. What should, what should a preacher preach about on Christmas Day? What, uh, what would be a, a good, a good thing to, to say? Well, I'll tell you what I was thinking. So my mind was, was um, you know, I, my mind went to the wise men. I'm like, you know, maybe I should, maybe there's some things we could learn from the wise men. But I went home, and I have this habit of taking notes um, every Sunday, at least most Sundays. And uh, I looked up to see who preached last Sunday and gave the Christmas message. Remember who that was, Warren? That was Warren. And uh, obviously, if he doesn't remember who preached the message, he don't remember what was preached either. So he preached about the wise men. Well, I wonder what we talked about two years ago. Well, what do you know? It was the wise men. So we're on a wise man roll here. And I was like, well, you know, maybe we could, maybe we could do a different theme here. And so, you know, the, the obvious other characters, if you want to go to characters, would be uh, probably the shepherds, maybe. And I thought, well, maybe that's a little more fitting to, to my uh, occupation and, and, uh, and way of life. Uh, we'll, let, we'll let Warren associate with the wise men. I'll go with the shepherds, Warren. <laughs> anyway, so um, we'd like to, uh, we would like to consider this uh, for a few minutes. You can turn to Luke 2, where this, uh, this story is recorded. Um, while you're turning there, I'll give you some information. Darla and I were listening to some uh, sermons to and from our travels here a week or two ago, and we were listening to a speaker that he seemed to know what he was, I I assume he knew what he was saying here, but he said that, um, you know how it's not uncommon, or once in a while we'll say, who can remember what what the message was last Sunday? You know, we all sit there kind of shamefaced and embarrassed. We can't remember. And it's even, it's even, it's even questionable sometimes that the person that gave the message can even remember. And, uh, well, he, he said that it's what I'm saying to you right now, you can possibly retain for 10 minutes. You'll, you'll retain that for about 10 minutes. And unless I say something really profound this morning that really resonates with you, you're, you're going to lose it pretty quick. And uh, he was saying that all in the context that if we really want to retain stuff, we should be writing it down. And and he even maintained that um, even if we keyboard it, you know, some people, the real techies among us, will bring a little keyboard to, to church and they'll take notes with a keyboard. And I, I suppose the people that study this thing say that even that's not as good as if you take out your pen and your paper and you literally write it down. So just an FYI, if you don't want to embarrass yourself, you can maybe... Try, try that and see how it goes for you. But uh, anyway, so we're not going to hold it against anybody if they don't remember anything that was said this morning and for sure not next year. Luke 2, we're going to read a few verses here starting at verse 1. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, 
to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And we'll stop reading there. So I have, I think it's um, seven things we can learn from the shepherds here this morning, hopefully, and uh, and apply them to our lives. And I've entitled the, the, the message, if you need a title, A Shepherd's Christian. Christmas in a Roman's world. The first thing I would like to point out to us is that God is well in control of the world's affairs. Now, that's no new thought to you. Um, this this um, particular event with the, the hostages in Haiti being, being released is, once again, a, a reminder of that. God is well in control of the world's affairs. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken much time to consider why the uh, the first seven verses of chapter 2 are here. Often, we start at verse 8 when we read about the shepherds. And there we're in the same country, shepherds abiding. Well, there's there must be a reason that the uh, was and, and so on. And I, and I found some few things that, that are interesting about this man that I'd like to share with you this morning. So, prior to Caesar Augustus and his rise to power, from what I could gather... He could be considered the first Roman emperor. Now, he wasn't necessarily called that, but, you know, as historians kind of document things, they, they point to this man as the first emperor. Prior to this time, what we know of as the Roman Empire was not necessarily an empire. It was more of a republic. Now, a republic is a form of govern- governance and I don't know if I can totally explain this, but it's it's kind of a democracy. It's by the people, but the people elect a person to represent them. All right, so that's technically the 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 kind of government we have here in this country is a republic. It's often um, street lingo is that we live in a democracy, but not really. We we live in a republic is is what it is. So 
as I said, prior prior to Caesar Augustus, this was this was more the way uh, the Roman Empire was run. But I'm not going to get into the weeds and the details. But this Augustus man, through dubious means, he displaced all of his competing or equal colleagues and turned this Roman Republic into what became known as an empire. And when you have an empire, you now have a dictator, you have an emperor, and this man is, he is old King Cole, and he sits high and well above everybody else, and he calls the shots, and his, his, um, his decrees count. He decides what, what's up and what isn't, and, um, and it's kind of a, 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 um, well, you understand it. There's, there's one man in control here. Now, interestingly enough, uh, we, we would think in our minds, in our North American United States sort of minds, we would look at that as a deterioration of government. We would say, now that, that was not a move in a very good direction, that we have what was a republic going to what becomes a dictatorship, uh, an empire. But, but I'd like to just say something right here. As I considered this, and, and as I thought of just human history, you know, just briefly, in, in the grand perspective, is one form of governance better than another? It, really not. I mean, when you think about it, not necessarily. Now, now that's hard to say because there does seem like there is some advantages to some forms of government over another, but, but, but really what it boils down to is if, let, let's just take this emperor here by chance. This man here, through his, his reign and his ways of doing things, ushered in an era that was known for 200 years, starting with him and 200 years after that, was an era of time that was known as the Pax Romana. Okay, now that's Latin for a peaceful existence. All right, so for 200 years, Rome, the, the Roman Empire literally existed in an almost um, exclusive peace. There was, there was skirmishes on the, outs, on the outskirts, but the, its citizens in the heartland knew nothing of warfare, knew nothing of, um, of the trauma that that brings. So the, the average American citizen, I'm sorry, American, Roman citizen, was doing very well during this time. Uh, the empire prospered. Commerce was good. The uh, empire infrastructure was great. We we often talk about the roads, that, the, the infrastructure that uh, the Roman um, Empire had in that time and so on. And from a very bird's eye view, that particular era of time was exactly what the Christian church needed to establish itself in its infancy. And, and we talk about how what a great advantage that was to, uh, to have Christ come at that particular time. So in my mind, it, it is interesting that through this man that, that somewhat changed the form of government, something good came out of that. And um, we know as time moved on, um, that deteriorated into a very, a very, very bad situation where the Caesars became something to be worshipped and so on. And this man himself, I'm in no way insinuating, was any godly person. He, I think he was a selfish man. I think he was motivated by power and pride and greed. And I don't think he was in any way 
fulfilling God's will that he knew. And uh, it could be that his his self-exaltation and so on, his his pride and, and pomp and power could have been some motivation for this this taxation. You know, I don't know what the motivation for that all was, but but this census and taxation, um, who knows what, what motivated him. But one thing we know, he had no scruples about the hardship or inconvenience that this was going to cause any pregnant woman, that it would have to travel from way up north down to Bethlehem to uh, for this census and this, uh, this tax or whatever. He didn't care about that. He made no exceptions to those rules. And I'm, I'm relatively sure that nobody in that era necessarily saw the hand of God moving in that, in that period of time. Not necessarily. But as we look at it from this vantage point, we can see it. So the point I want to make here is that God used this very ungodly person to bring about a thing that was good for his people and to prepare the world for his son. And, um, what can we say to that? If there's a lesson that I, when things seem like they're going wrong and we feel a little bit uh, uneasy travel and so on in, in a very broad context now, I'm talking, uh, j- just relax. It, it's in God's, it's in God's hands and there may very well be a reason for, for what is happening out there in our world. Consider this for a second as well. You know, it was Israel's longing and desire, the Jews' desire, that they would have autonomy and a country to call their own. They did not enjoy this Roman oppression whatsoever. We know that. We know about the stories of the Maccabees and the the uprisings, the zealots that, um, you know, these little um, armies that would pop up and try to free themselves from this oppression. We know about that. But do you suppose... You know, just think of this hypothetically now. Do you suppose if Israel would have been its own autonomous nation and would have, would have, um, you know, they would have been its, their own country and so on. Do you think they would have been any better prepared or the people of those, of those days would have been any better prepared in any way to receive the Messiah as he came? Would that have changed anything? I would, I would say it's doubtful. And beyond that, perhaps just the fact that they were they were cynical about the government. They they were tired of the oppression. They were longing for freedom and so on. Do you think in some people's hearts, the common man, uh, the twelve disciples, do you suppose that that scenario maybe primed them a little better for that coming of Christ and this Prince of Peace and this new new um, era of uh, of governance uh, of a kingdom that was eternal? I'm going to say that possibly it could have. It could have been a, a, a very good setup for people to be more receptive to the to the gospel. Now, that's not saying people were. We know the, the, the answer to that. People still weren't extremely receptive, but perhaps more people were. We, we don't know that. All right. The second point I'd like to make here is that the, the godly and the ungodly have coexisted um, together, the entire New Testament church era. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears here, where it says, "And there were in the same country shepherds." All right, that's what I want to. I want to very same country that we have this Caesar Augustus. We have this taxing. We have all this carrying on going on. 
We have, we have shepherds. And that kind of stands in stark contrast to the previous seven verses. So we have turmoil and distress. We have Bethlehem teeming with people that comes for taxing. We have a tyrannical king, etc. And we also have shepherds. Well, that sent me on a little bit of a, of a research of just exactly who were shepherds during this time. Like, like, was shepherding a common thing? You know, I think, in my mind anyway, I don't know how you, you know, relate to this story, but in my mind, I always thought of this shepherd story as being, well, you know, there was probably a lot of shepherds in those days. Um, you know, a common thing, an honorable thing to do out there herding sheep. But my research leads me to think, maybe not. Um, so if you if you go way back in the Bible, the first shepherd that we have we have record of was a man by the name of Jabel, and he was one of Lamech's two sons, or I'm sorry, one a son of one of Lamech's two wives. And it says of this man that he became the father of such as dwell in tents and of such that have cattle. Now that cattle thing is very inclusive and likely includes sheep. All right, so if you go into the patriarchal nomadic times, you know, I'm talking now like Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that era of time, shepherding was a very noble and and, um, and necessary thing, and often wealth assessment, as in Job, was based on how many cattle you had, and sheep were, were very much included in that. However, by the time the Israelites go into Egypt, you remember this, whenever there was that famine and the Israelites or the, 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 the 12 sons of Jacob go down to Egypt to find re- relief from the, the famine, you remember what it says about shepherds and how the Egyptians viewed shepherds. It says that, that Jacob told his brothers, or I'm sorry, Joseph told his brothers, he said, now when you go to Pharaoh, you tell them that you want to go over here to the land of Goshen and kind of separate yourselves out here because he said to the Egyptian, a shepherd is an abomination. And I've always been curious why shepherding was an abomination. That's a strong word. I mean, that's like a loathing hatred of a shepherd. Um, and I'm not sure that, that my research is 100% accurate, but there was some indication that, that in those days, and not unlike these days necessarily, People that were uh, interested in, and, and, and took care of livestock, sheep in particular, kind of were pitted against people that raised produce and just did field work. So in other words, if on, on, the, on the rungs of the ladder, if you were a shepherd, you were more lowly than the guy that was out there and he was just, he was the clean guy, you know, that he was working in his fields and, and you know, harvesting crops and those kinds of things. So that it was just a loathsome thing, and they and they saw the the, the Egyptians saw them as as like um, unwanted competition, I guess, to their farming practices. And it's also interesting to me is as you read through the stories, when the children of Israel got to the land of Canaan, if you remember, it was the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh that said, you know, we really like it here on the west side of Jordan or the east side, rather. Let's stay here because there's a lot of pasture here for our cattle, and I'm assuming sheep would have been included in that. We're not really interested in going on the other side. And you remember how they worked that all out, and they were able to stay there. But this particular person I was reading, his suggestion was that by that time, 
it was only those three tribes that were really necessarily interested in shepherding. Uh, the, the rest of them were, you know, they had been in, influenced enough by Egypt that they weren't, they really didn't have any interest in that anymore. Well, let's go a little bit further in this, in our, in our Israelite history, and we come to, to King David. Now, you remember King David, he was a shepherd. And just think about it. Did, did Samuel go out looking for the shepherd as the king? No, he was the last guy in. You know, Samuel was not looking among shepherds for kings. And when David goes to the brothers to see how the, the armies are making out, um, the oldest brother, he was, he, he, he spoke to David with contempt. He said, with who did you leave those few sheep? Like, like, you know, you're just this, you're just this person that I don't have much time for you or your sheep, right? So anyway, at, according to what I could gather, by the time Jesus comes along, <clears throat> this, this era of time, Shepherds had even become to be, be viewed as untrustworthy people. And uh, perhaps even it denied some civil rights, such as du- judicial duties and court witnesses. I just find that fascinating, that, that if you were a shepherd, you were automatically um, somewhat black-marked or, or stereotyped. And, and um, so this is, this is where we find shepherds. So here we have this group of people who, despite the distasteful reputation that was probably labeled to them because of their occupation. They were faithfully doing a job that likely their, their ancestors had done for thousands of years or hundreds anyway, perhaps even looked down on. However, I tend to believe that these shepherds were upstanding people because I just think God picked upstanding shepherds to deliver this news to. So, I would like to, to, to just challenge us with this. You know, we live in a time that is full of national turmoil. You know that. That's no, that's no news to anybody. And there's a lot of things out there that are distasteful and, and uh, not very nice. And, um, you know, we don't have Caesar Augustus, but we have other people that, that give us heartburn sometimes, perhaps. But you know, these shepherds, they just watched their sheep despite all that. They just kept watching sheep. That's what they did. They were in the same country of all this turmoil, and they just watched their sheep. There's not, there's not very much these shepherds could have, could have done to change anything, to change the circumstances, to change the national scene, to change how people stereotype them, nothing. What, what could they have really done? Not really too much. And I would like to challenge us today to let's just exist well in the same country where there's trouble and turmoil and problems. Look, that's part of life. That's kind of been with the world since it began. It was with the shepherds. It's somewhat still with us today. And I don't think that we need to find ourselves unduly stressed by these things. And I think God would just faithfully like us to see us faithfully watch those few sheep that we're entrusted to, whatever that may be. So I'd like to challenge us with that. The third thing I'd like us to learn from the, the shepherds comes in verse 15. The shepherds received this announcement from the angels here of this birth of Jesus at face value. Now perhaps the selection of the shepherds here for this announcement was, was made to these simple people because it was a simple announcement. 
And uh, there was no sophistication here about these shepherds or the announcement. Now, the, the announcer was somewhat sophisticated, and uh, the host of angels, i got to believe that had a, a bit of sophistication to it, but the announcement itself was not. And the shepherds didn't de- debate after they heard this thing whether it was real or whether they should interpret the thing a bit. They didn't debate if there was a Savior called Christ the Lord born, and they didn't even... It seems like, from the reading anyway, they didn't say to one another after it was all over, hey, did, did we just have an epiphany? Did, did you see what I saw? I mean, or, you know, I don't know. This is what I saw. Did you see that? They didn't even have that discussion. It just seemed like they assumed that they all saw the same thing. And again, uh, this probably sounds like old encouragement, but I would like to encourage us to be the same way. Can we just receive the simple word of God just the way it's written? I mean, we live in a world that that people will take this book and they will do just like Peter says some people did in his day and they will rest it to their own destruction. And we see that, don't we? We see that around us all over. That people will say, well, you know, um, that passage doesn't apply and that doesn't really mean this and, and we'll do it this way and our culture has to dictate that and so on and so on. And, and, and it, it somewhat even um, worries me, maybe I'll use that word, that maybe I in my blindness don't even see everything in this Word of God the way I should. You know, if people can read the Word of God and miss some of the, what I think are extremely obvious things, the question behooves me, what am I reading that's obvious that I'm missing? Is that a possibility? And uh, I would say that that perhaps could be a possibility, that I'm missing something that's glaringly obvious. But I don't want to be among the people that if I do have something that God speaks to me and says, you know, you need to do this, this is in my word, that I will say, well, no, I, I, I won't do that. I'll, this, this doesn't apply to me today. We're really, we're really warned about that in the word of God. Paul tells the Colossian believers, he said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. There's just not a lot of explanation needed of that verse. There is a real tendency or a real um, opportunity for us to be spoiled through these various ways. Paul also tells the Corinthians that, um, that, you know, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the things that are mighty and the base things and the things that are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. So I think the the lesson for us is as a body of believers that profess and attempt to take the word of God at face value, Let's continue to do that. Let's um, let's approach God's word that way. Let's be simple. Let's be let's be shepherds in that way, and um, and take God's announcements to us just the way they're written. The fourth thing I would like to to mention here out of this account is when the uh, shepherds receive this announcement, what do they do? They followed it. All right. So it's one thing to get the announcement. It's quite another to do something about the announcement. Well, that's what they did. They promptly responded to the announcement that they received. 
And a prompt response to God's word is always right. Here in this particular passage, we have a direct, audible, supernatural announcement. Now, I seriously doubt, I would, I, I doubt until uh, the Lord comes back and we hear a trumpet and we see the, the mighty things that will happen then. I, I just rather doubt I'll ever have an announcement given to me from an angel. Um, I guess perhaps God could choose to do that, but I don't think he will. I'm not looking for that necessarily. But I do think that when we receive a prompting from the Holy Spirit on any given thing, you know, and we have these at times, it's important that we respond to that immediately. Think, think for me for a minute. What if these shepherds would have said, well, look, you know what? It's late at night. The sheep are here. Somebody's got to keep track of them. Um, I think tomorrow afternoon would be a good time for us to go down here and hunt this um, hunt this thing up. Let's just relax. You know, we're, we're pretty giddy right now. Our nerves are on edge, and this has been it's been a pretty big deal here. Let's get a little sleep. We'll go down tomorrow and we'll look for it. I have a feeling by the next afternoon. We don't know that, but I don't think there was any babe in swaddling clothes lying in a manger the next afternoon. I think by that time the innkeeper had found a room for these people in the inn. Now maybe I'm maybe I'm overthinking this thing, but I'd say there was a possibility that that could have happened. So if they would have went down hunting for that babe the next afternoon, they wouldn't have found them. The sign would have left. And I guess that's what I'd like to just encourage us. You know, when we have opportunities, opportunities to say the right thing at the right time, or an opportunity to be nice to someone at the right time, that, that opportunity avails itself to do the right thing. It's the right time to do it, right? It's always the right time to do the right thing. And so when that, when that opportunity comes up, don't say, well, you know what, I'm in a hurry. Um, we'll, um, you know, maybe tomorrow afternoon. Well, you know what? Likely that opportunity won't come back. Uh, or at least not that exact opportunity. And it's easy to procrastinate. I get that. And, um, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. Um, things that are hard, difficult, not exciting. We, we, it's easy to procrastinate those things. But don't do it. Opportunities come and they go, and sometimes when they're gone, they're gone. And these shepherds uh, were very wise in the fact that they made haste and they went and they found that that babe just like they were told. The fifth thing I see here from these shepherds is uh, in verse 17. These shepherds were, should we call them the first evangelists? You know, an evangel is someone that spreads good news. So if that's the case, these guys were indeed the first evangelists. So when they came away from this particular thing here, when they found the babe and, and Mary and Joseph and so on, it says they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. It seems like they were extremely anxious to, to tell this story. And, and when you spread something abroad, it seems to me that if there was ten shepherds, we don't know how many there were, but let's just say there was ten, um, perhaps they said, well, now, Joe, you take First Street, and Jim, you take Second Street. And they, I just think they went through Bethlehem, and they said, well, as we go to the field, let's just take each block here, and let's tell anybody that we see about this particular news. I mean, you know, this is, this is a great thing that happened here. 
And it did not seem, from the reading anyway, that they were discriminate about who they told. And they didn't, it didn't even seem like it mattered how it was perceived by the people. And I think the lesson for us is obvious too, isn't it? You know, we are called as God's people to be sowers of the seed. We have been given seed and we're expected to sow that seed. And we haven't necessarily been instructed not to sow seed certain places. In this, in a parable, the sower, the sower threw a seed out there and some fell on bad ground, rocky ground, shallow ground, thorny ground. But then there was some that fell on good ground. And the good ground is what the story is all about. But, you know, sometimes we don't know. We don't know when, when hearts are going to be rocky or stony or thorny or whatever it all is. But we still need to sow seed. Jesus tells his disciples in uh, John 4, and this is maybe not the sowing, this is the harvesting part, but it, it's somewhat the same same thing. He said, Say not ye, there are four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Now, folks, if, if the fields were white and ready to harvest back in Jesus' day, do you suppose they've changed at all today? Do you suppose they're any less white, less ready for harvest? I think I think we know the answer to that, don't we? I've been I I, I purchased the audio book that Gary Miller produced re- recently here on Reaching America, and I've been I've been intrigued. I'm not through the book yet. I haven't listened to it all yet. But you know, it is a daunting task. It it is, and it. Our, our country that we live in is, has a lot of problems. And, and it has a lot of what Gary dubs as contaminated soil. Soil that makes the gospel message especially hard to spread. But the encouragement is that does not dismiss us from that responsibility. And, and, and I would like to just quickly move into point number six, which comes from verse 18. It says, and they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. There is no record that any one of these people that heard this message said, well, let's go see that too. We have no record that there was even one person heard that shepherd's story and said, well, let's go to the barn as well. I think they were met with skepticism. And the fact that the story sounded so radical you know, that they were met by these heavenly hosts and this angel, and there's this savior in the, in, a, in a manger in a barn here. I mean, the radicalness of the whole thing. They were probably like, you know, these shepherds, we already know the whole lot is untrustworthy. They're the lowest class citizens around. They probably were drinking, the, you know, tonight, and they're out of their minds, you know, it's a nice story, but have a good day, you know, we're not going to bother trying to find a baby in the barn. Well, I don't know that. I don't know if uh, if that's what people thought or not, but it seems pretty obvious that there was no takers on the message. And I would say that that's not unlike the gospel message, is it? Jesus said that it would be a few people that would look at the narrow way and say, you know, that looks like a good way to go. We're, we're going to try the narrow path there. No, no, Jesus said that's going to be, there's going to be few people that actually are going to find that message attractive. 
So what, it, what ends up happening, at least in our day, is because the message is so unbelievable, so unattractive, so, um, it's not desirable. So the tendency is, well, let's make it a little more desirable. Let's, let's see if we can mesh the broad way and the narrow way in some way that the message is just a little more desirable. And I'm not sure if there'd have been any way that the shepherds could have been embellished their, uh, message or not. Um, they could have maybe toned it down a little. They could have said, well, you know, there's going to be nobody believe us that angels came and talked to us. That's so over the top to think of that. So what we'll say is, we're, you know, we just were happened to be going through Bethlehem and we turned into the stable and, and you know, we, we saw this interesting, interesting thing here. And, um, you know, they, they could have maybe twisted the story a little bit to make it sound more realistic, perhaps. And maybe they'd have got some takers. I don't know. You know, my imagination's running away with me now. But they told the story the way they heard it. Nobody necessarily believed them the way it sounds. They wondered about it, it says. But that did not deter the, the shepherds for tell, from telling the message. Let's not let it do that to us either. Seventh and lastly, we have, what is it here, about um, ten verses on the shepherds. That's it. That's all we have. The shepherds appear in Luke 2 and ten verses, and they disappear from history, and we never know what happens to the shepherds after that. The event here was monumental, and I would like in my imagination, again, this is total imagination, but wouldn't it be nice to think that the shepherds, because of this event, they were among the faithful who at some point down the line after the resurrection, they were among the multitudes that perhaps heard the full story and how Jesus was resurrected and how he was the savior of mankind and it made sense to them and they became followers of Jesus in a way that they would have not even been able to here during this particular time. We, we don't know that. We have no idea if that's true or not. All we know is we have a story about the shepherds and then we don't anymore. I think if there's any lesson for us here is this is not unlike many, many, many people in the Bible. What do we know about Simeon or Anna beyond a few verses? Nothing. Literally nothing. What do we know about Dorcas other than the fact that she sewed clothes for people and gave some away? What do we know about the boy that had the lunch that fed the 5,000? We don't even know that poor man's name. What do we know about Barnabas? We know a little more about him. What do we know about the house of Stephanus, other than they were very generous people? Or Epaphroditus, a wonderful friend of Paul's, but um, he's mentioned three verses in the Bible, and we have to piece together the rest of it. And then you can even think about people that really are well-known. You think about it. Well-known people from, let's just say, 100 years ago. You know, they come, they do their thing, they, 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 they leave the scene, and they make their mark, but as time moves on, their mark becomes less distinct. And that's the way the world runs. The simple lesson is this. Uh, none of us here are likely to become a who's who in the, in the grand scheme of things. Likely not. Um, our imprint on the annals of time will be likely fairly, fairly small. But that should not deter us from being faithful in our generation. So in conclusion, I would like to encourage us, let's be shepherds.
Let's be simple people. Let's serve God well in our generation. And let's enjoy Christmas in a godly, shepherd-like way this year.